This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 1. This is going to be a discussion of the February 2016 Criterion Collection lineup. I'm Ryan Gallagher, and joining me tonight, I have three folks from CriterionCast.com to talk about the February titles. I have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Good evening. I have Scott and I. Hey, Scott. Hello. And Aaron West. Hey, Aaron. Hello again. All right, everyone. So new podcast we have a new show on the network that we are uh this is our first it's our pilot episode of this new uh new show why are we doing this new show you might ask um well the idea for this show kind of sprung out of our monthly discussions on the newsstand where we talk about the month's releases three months ahead of time before anyone has had a chance to watch everything and kind of really uh know what criterion has in store for us we just kind of have you know we're just going off of our gut reactions often with uh you know seeing covers and seeing lists of supplements and seeing you know plot descriptions for some movies that you know maybe we've seen maybe we haven't seen and that was kind of it uh up until you know when we would actually discuss the one film in our episode or we would discuss it at the end of the year or the middle of the year depending on you know what we plan on doing you know covering the year as a whole um so the idea came up that maybe we could just do a monthly episode wrapping up everything that has come out that month um, once we've all had a chance to see some or all of the releases and so here we are um that was kind of the idea my goals with this are kind of just to uh you know have a light conversation about these five releases how did we all react to them uh what you know how do they all maybe tie together? How does this fit into Criterion's, you know, grand vision or, you know, the, the grand equation that is Criterion? Um, but I wanted to thank you guys for joining me on this, this little test episode uh, because it's going to be, uh, I think, a lot of fun. This is a lot. Of, this is a, a really nice month to start things off with. Um, so before we get started in talking about uh, the films tonight, the five films that Criterion released in February... Um, I'll go around and see if you guys have any thoughts on, you know, what you might want to get out of uh, a new podcast like this, where we talk about the month's releases. Um, David. Well, sure. You know, I mean, I guess my blogging reputation has been staked on this idea of kind of moving through the Criterion Collection in this chronological scheme where I've got all the films lined up by their original release date. And as a result of that, you know, sometimes there's a nice coincidence such as, you know, Death by Hanging, which we're going to talk about shortly, uh, where it's a new release that also falls into my timeline. But that's pretty much the exception, not the rule. And so what ends up happening is that a lot of these movies, these new release uh, criterion uh, issues are kind of, you know, pushed off my, my uh, you, know, you know, priority list because I'm reviewing something else. But I kind of like the idea of doing this on a regular basis where uh, I'm just going to squeeze in somewhere or another uh, the new releases and... Uh, have at least an opinion or a take on, on each of them, even if it's just a short, you know, surface impression rather than the full study. I'm not going to dedicate myself to watching every last supplement on every last Criterion release that comes out in a given month, but I'll watch enough to say, okay, let's be part of the conversation and also just sort of stay current with what's happening in the the Criterion fan scene that we're all a part of. So. Uh, I think it's a great idea. It's a, it is. It's a nice follow-up to the newsstand conversations we have, where we're looking ahead, and now that we've got the product in our hands and on our shelves and in our players, 
uh, what do we think of it all? So uh, I'm happy to be part of it. Scott, do you have any, uh, any opening thoughts for this? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think kind of like David and like Brian, you were saying on our Slack chat as we're kind of putting this together, you know, we kind of catch up with new releases where we can, especially towards the end of the year when we're looking towards the best of the year stuff. It often feels like we're just cramming everything in. And as a result, there have been things that I buy during sales that I can't wait to check out that I just never end up getting around to. And there's stuff I've owned for years that I haven't yet watched. And so I'm looking forward to doing this kind of keep up a little bit more with the new releases and keep on top of those things that I, I know I'm looking forward to. Like I, March, there's so many releases that I'm so excited for, but without uh, kind of some sort of podcast obligation, it's easy to let these things slide by. Um, I won't be able to keep up with every single release Criterion puts out for <clears throat> reasons both financial and uh, uh, temporal, I guess. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, I'm just glad to pick up what, what I can and hear what you guys have to say, and hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well. And Aaron, do you have any any thoughts on this uh, this little new project of ours? Yeah, I think I can echo really all three of you guys. I think it's exciting. I think it's uh, as a, a listener and a participant. I think it's fun to you know I, we kind of guess what the, the releases will be like uh, three months ahead of time, and you know we look at the supplements and and uh, say oh yeah this uh, Tony Rains commentary might be nice. But uh, now we have a chance to actually. Uh, you know, indulge in the content. And, and like you said, we have uh, an excuse to watch these week by week and or uh, every month. So yeah, I think it's going to be a great show and I, I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, it's, it's I, you know, for so long, for so many years now, we've been doing the podcast and I feel like I, with the new releases in general, like I try to watch them as soon as I can, but I do like the, um, like discovering a film later down the line when it's not being talked about. But I've been doing that for so long that I feel like this might be an interesting way to feel, um, you know, more involved with the releases than I already am, even though I'm, you know, reading all these news stories and following all these people talking about the Criterion Collection throughout the whole year. Um, Actually, having seen all five releases in the month over the past several weeks um, has been a real treat, like in a way that I haven't really, I mean... My schedule is opening up slightly these days with my daughter now in preschool kind of, and it's given me a little bit more time in the mornings at least to watch some of this stuff. And so it's been really nice to, you know, pop in a disc and watch for a couple hours and know that I have this free time and that has kind of allowed this podcast to begin. Um, So I... I hope this will keep going. Uh, I guess we'll see how we all go you know, if we're able to keep up uh, over the course of the year. But uh, I think I think it's manageable. At least you know. At least if if all of us see one or two releases, then you know I think we can keep this going. Yeah. The only downside is uh, you have we have to buy them uh, on a weekly basis. So <laughs> I, I missed out on the uh, the, the flash sale because I had everything. Um, but you know, Amazon sales help help that a lot. And there's another one going on right now. So yeah, um, I know. And then as these as Criterion continues to release, like you know, all new releases, no Blu-ray upgrades, that makes things a little bit more tricky as far as mm-hmm. uh, being able to watch everything. You know, at, right when it comes out. And as Criterion is now releasing longer films and box sets again, it's going to make things even harder, or at least bore. Uh, you know, we're going to have much more on our plates as we go along. Yeah, we sure will. A road trilogy. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the road trilogy. I'm looking at a brighter summer day. Uh, mm. Those are going to take, uh, those are going to be nice little chunks of time that I'm going to have to devote to watching these movies. Well, we have the immigrants here. That's no, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> 
So let's start off with The Emigrants. So that came out this month on February 9th. This was the first release of the month. This was a two-film set. I don't... Do they refer to it as a box set? Uh, I know they... No, each film has its own spine number. So it's not like the box set spine number plus each film spine number. So... Not a box set. Well, okay, but uh, the the uh, Lady Snowblood release, at least from Criterion's point of view, was considered a box set. But they, I don't know if they consider if they, I don't think they refer to this as a box set, uh, even though that Lady Snowblood release was only one disc. <laughs> yeah, it's, it just says two films by Jan Troel. So yeah. it does say box set on their website for the oh. record. Okay, thank well, you, there you Scott. Go. <laughs> I'm a uh, heretic. What can I say? <laughs> no, I, I am. I am on team. Uh, this is not a box set. Yeah, it's not even a slipcase. I mean, give us a slipcase at least if it's going to be a box. set. Yeah, that's, it's not a box. <laughs> so this film, this is. Uh, so who who is? Uh, sorry, I don't have our document in front of me here. Who uh, who is in charge of this discussion here? Uh, that would be moi. I, I chose the the real long epic one. <laughs> so. Uh, 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 should I just get right into it? Sure. Well, um, so what we're gonna what what the initial plan for this podcast was going to be was that um, one of us would kind of take on one of these releases, or you know, one or more of the releases, just depending on um, who ha- was most interested in it. And so for this one, Aaron is going to be kind of leading the discussion. Although I think most of us, I think all of us, have seen this release. Uh, I have seen most of the emigrants at this point, but I have not picked up on uh, the new. Uh, the new land yet but um but yeah so take it away aaron and i think uh, neither of you guys had seen the new land yet is that correct no unfortunately not not quite my wife and i are working on it we're really enjoying it but uh, we just haven't been able to squeeze it's the second <laughs> film in yet it's a long one well mm-hmm. i I, ha- I have and i actually i, I highly rec- recommend you do finish it it's it's quite oh, we've, uh, a film we've loved yeah. it definitely yeah uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, the the word epic is is almost obvious uh, for for a set like this. Uh, the running time is about six and a half hours. So uh, you know, box set or not, it's um you know the length is uh, about uh, equal to most box sets. Yes. Uh, but uh, just a, a brief summary: it is about Carl uh, Oscar and Christina, who are two um, uh, two farmers or a farming couple from Sweden. That want to uh, emigrate. Well, actually, they they a lot of the early portion of uh, the emigrants is them uh, trying to live, and they have uh, some they have to deal with some adversity. And uh, as the title implies, I don't think this is a spoiler, and but I will be sensitive of these. But uh, <laughs> they do uh, emigrate, and of course, the, the second film is called The New Land. So you know, <laughs> they make <laughs> they, it. <laughs> they, they, spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, so they emigrate to America with uh, with with a group. Uh, this is based on uh, religious persecution and, uh, as I mentioned, uh, some tragedy. Uh, they have Carl uh, 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 Oscar, who is played by Max von Sydow, uh, his uh, little brother uh, Robert, and uh, Robert brings a friend, uh, uh, Arvid, and then uh, there's a minister and some of his friends that come along, and, and of course there's some persecution there. So, uh, yeah, the first movie really is a journey. Uh, I guess at first it's adversity and then a journey. But uh, I, I think it's a very strong film. Uh, they're, they're both, of course, lengthy films. And, uh, and uh, have you all seen Jan Troel's uh, other works, or at least the ones in the collection? Yeah, I have, definitely. Uh, that's Everlasting Moments, which is a more recent film. And then uh, Here Is Your Life, which came out last summer, and that was his debut. 
Yeah, he, he has a, a very sort of a trademark style. Uh, you know, he, he's often compared to Bergman because, just because he's Swedish in, in the 60s and, and 50s, uh, really the 60s. But uh, de- definitely a different uh, type of uh, aesthetic. You know, he, he's slower. Uh, he's not as cerebral, uh, more uh, more blue collar sort of. Of course, these are farmers. Uh, he likes to show, you know, that there's little digressions. He likes to film birds, which uh, which come into play in, in these films, especially Here's Your Life. Uh, he's there, he's also there's a great moment in one of the supplements where they where he talks about how didn't he like anger someone on the set because he was like oh i've got to quickly (laughs) capture those birds like turn the camera up Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of that style reminded me of terrence malick big time um i could see that hearing that working method that's exactly how malick started to work with days of heaven and everything after yeah he anytime he saw a bird he would just you know whatever the scene was he would shoot that bird and a lot of them made it into the film and of course uh, birds are, are prominent in here's your life as well and uh, that was an adaptation of four novels uh, by the a series, and and this is as well. Of course, this is double the running time. Uh, so yeah, the the first movie is solid. Uh, somebody that I really respect, who I, I won't name, uh, is a hater of this movie, and he he hated on it because he thought it was inaccurate of the uh, the immigrant experience. Uh, but and I guess he thought it was a little. Uh, the picture was a little too rosy, and I have to disagree with that. Uh, and Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> people, they, they, they suffer. They go through some intense ordeals. And, uh, you know, maybe there are some shortcuts. I'm sure if you do a real strict historical research and read the original diaries of the settlers, you're going to find some shortcuts or simplifications. But I, I found this this portrayal very gripping. I mean, compared mm-hmm. to something like well, Far and Away, wasn't that the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman thing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which is just so sweeping and romanticized. But, you know, it is what it is. It's a date movie or whatever. Uh, this here was was pretty gripping, at least in, in, in uh, you know, my wife's opinion and, and myself. We watched it just a couple nights ago. Yeah, for as long as this movie is, uh, he manages to keep things moving pretty quickly and doesn't ever, and I don't think the running time, I, I looked at that running time thinking, okay, well, I'm probably never going to watch this cause this is way too long, but you know, I have been watching it in hour chunks and I, I find myself wanting to go back and keep the story going and, um, finding myself really invested in, in these people's lives and to say that they're like, you know, sugarcoating it or making this too sweet. Oh man, you know, there are some, <laughs> some pretty heartbreaking death, uh, deaths in this movie. And yeah, um, at least in and the, you, you know, in, in the, and some immigrants. very close calls, even yeah. for those who survive. So, and, and in yeah, the it, new land, it's, it's even worse. So oh. <laughs> I, I won't, uh, won't get into that, but it's, uh, it's really tough. I, but yeah, I, for for me too, I, I thought it moved actually fast. Uh, uh, I mean, I, it's kind of seems weird saying this, but it kind of it's a slower pace, but it's so engaging that it, it moves along uh, very fast. So I was always uh, I- intrigued uh, by by the family, and I, I thought the characters were very well developed, uh, multi dimensional, and I, I liked the slower digressions just because uh, you kind of they speak to the characters' motivations. And uh, they give us some time to reflect on, you know, what what is the situation. Uh, so yeah, the the, the new land. I, I encourage you guys to see it. I, I actually I thought that was the superior film. I mean, you, you really can't separate them. But I, I thought it was even more engaging. Uh, there's this really great uh, desert sequence, uh, and which I, I won't go into. But uh, it, I was just, uh, you know, glued to the TV watching that. Uh, the performances uh, and you. Uh, 
shoot, you saw Maxim Moncido and Liv Ullman, of course, are heavyweights. But uh, Eddie Axberg, who he was the protagonist in um, Here's Your Life, I, I thought he was just fantastic in uh, in in that role, and he really comes comes alive in uh, the New Land. So mm-hmm. he's the he's the brother in this one. He's Robert, right? The younger yeah. brother. Yeah. With the ear the, the ear problems there. Yeah. He's not the best hearer. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, he's so, been. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of assaulted. Yeah. Uh, at the, at the in the beginning of the immigrants, right? And that's how that starts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, just real quick, one other thing, like about the the, the the quickly moving pace of the move uh, the movie. It's the beginning. Um, just as an example for anyone who's like looking at this running time as being daunting, like I feel like they managed to compress so much time in this first few minutes when they're introducing the characters and saying like, Oh, mm-hmm. you have to come take, Oh, you know, like the first we meet the parents and then something happens to the parents. And so, he, uh, Max von Sydow's character, Carl Oscar has to come in, uh, but he doesn't have a wife. And then suddenly he's married and then they have kids and all of this takes place over the course of a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, there's these episodes, but they're, they're all very, they're very compelling, but it ne- you never feel like he's engineering your emotions for like this mm-hmm. big build up in this, you know, revelatory moment or anything like that. It's just like, okay, here's a here's a thing that happened and it's pretty intense and it's pretty, you know, pretty heavy, but we're not gonna linger on that because <laughs> the next thing that's about to happen is also pretty, you know, pretty poignant in its own way. And it's just it just keeps it moving and 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 I really appreciated that. It and the 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 attention to detail and the 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 very uh, you know kind of rustic conditions of of farm life and then when they're on the the sailing ship actually coming over mm-hmm. to the new land I mean just getting that magnificent old boat you know that that ship out on the yeah, ocean yeah. I mean that was the real deal this was no CGI you know uh, rendering they they really rigged this thing up. Uh, with a very authentic, you know, old looking ropes and, you know, gear and, and everything. And, and it's like, you really feel like these people are about 1500 miles offshore or something (laughs) really, really going through this, uh, this, uh, experience. And I think there's a quote somewhere that I saw around the release of the, the, the DVD and Blu-ray that Liv Ullman said that this was her greatest experience in filmmaking, which was quite Mm -hmm. a statement in itself, considering the magnificent work she did with Ingmar Bergman and of course their relationship too. But uh, as, as I just saw the first half of this, you know, this, uh, you know, series of two films, I could understand exactly why she would say that because just, just the, the whole scope and scale of what, what's uh, put on screen is, is very powerful. So to have been an actor in that crew and, and, and actually you, you really feel like they, they really did move this film from Sweden to, you know, the, you know, North America. I, may, I don't know. Do you know anything about the locations? Were those, were those actual locations like filmed in Sweden and yes. in North America? Uh, so yeah, there's an authenticity to all that. Yeah. They were filmed in, uh, the early scenes were filmed in Smallland. I, I'm probably pronouncing it completely wrong. And then, uh, the other America was filmed and I think it was, I think it was Skein or something of that nature. Um, and, and yeah, the the Ullman comment, I, I actually caught that as well, and I and I thought that that might be a, a subtle diss towards uh, towards Ingmar. But in the context of the interview, I, I, he, she actually praises Ingmar. I think she just note, notes that the um, the style, and of course, uh, uh, Troel is an auteur. He 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 edits, he he writes, or he co-writes, and he um, uh, shoots the film. He's the cinematographer. 
So uh, the way she put it, and I don't have this quote in front of me, but I believe she said that uh, that Ingmar was a genius and Jan was an artist, and he captured her visually rather than intellectually, uh, something of that nature. So and I, I think seeing his films, I think that's a good summation. Well, and also I wonder, do you, maybe you know this, if it was filmed chronologically, there's such a sense of forward progression, and because the locations have to match their journey, I wonder if that could have been the production mode and if that could have been part of the reason why she latched onto it so much. You know, when you're following such an epic journey uh, so straightforwardly, sometimes that can have a huge effect on the way you experience it. Yeah, I don't, I didn't really say, but I kind of don't yeah. think it was chronological. And and by the way, the um, the ship, the interiors were actually a set. And uh, one of oh, the wow. supplements, uh, they, they had uh, uh, really big men moving, rocking the ship back and forth with these uh, little levers. Uh, that was kind of neat to see. Um, mm. It was, <laughs> It was a little light on supplements, but but I think I'm actually I was not disappointed because the transfer is important for these three hour movies, and uh, and they might have um, they might have compromised the the look, and it looked amazing. I thought. Yeah, I saw some negative remarks towards the transfer, but I thought it was really strong. It had a lot of kind of variance to the texture of the images it would on screen, and uh, you know the beauty of nature certainly comes through. And and there's some grain, but I think that's just Troel likes a little grain. There's well, there should be grain in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like so, grain too. <laughs> I mean, there's also there's one shot where it's you know kind of low light at night, and that one is was like way grainier than the others. But you really feel like they're not. He's not able to. You know, he's not trying to light this falsely. I guess, and so right, he's really yeah. trying to capture it as realistic as possible. On yeah, the tip of the great set. Yeah, I was just gonna say on the tip of the performances. Um, it's such a. It was so weird seeing Liv Ullman like this, since in so many Bergman films she plays such you know intelligent, educated, uh, you know the characters really think through their position in life. And here, you know, I don't want to insult her character by calling her more simple, but it's more kind of straightforward and immediate way of experiencing the world. But she's still so great in it. Mm, she's amazing, and, and she was recognized too. She was nominated for an Oscar. It, it was oh, good. fun hear about her experience too she goes goes to hollywood and says everybody tells you you're gonna win and then of course you lose and nobody looks at you <laughs> <laughs> so. i gotta say uh i'm sure everyone has, shares this sentiment uh, at some point and you know in many discussions of max von Sydow's, uh performances in the criterion collection but uh i hope in a thousand years people still uh, are able to hear his voice because he is just really one of the most distinct most like beautiful mm -hmm. cinematic voices uh <laughs> ever uh i mean he is just it's it's so it's so much fun to listen to him talk i mean it's like it's like poetry whatever it is he's saying mm -hmm. no he's gonna be on game of thrones too so that oh, yeah. we could hear the voice uh, very soon <laughs> um you know, one other th the uh, as far as the supplements go, the that discussion with John Simon, the theater critic, uh, was a pretty nice little introduction to you know contextualizing the movie. Um, mm -hmm. And while there aren't a lot, and you know, there's a few uh, other interviews on the supplements, I thought that was uh, pretty good. Yeah, there was a 2005 documentary that I, I liked a lot, and uh, and then the interviews. Uh, now, of course, this is often the case. A lot of the interviews are redundant with what's in the documentary. Uh, you could tell that. Uh, Troel has been asked a lot of the same questions and he gives a lot of the same answers, but uh, that's the case with a lot of these criterions. Well, guys, um, is there anything else that we should mention about this release before moving on? Um, I would totally agree with, with you guys that this is uh, a pretty solid beginning to February. I think it's yeah, my favorite I, cover of the month, too. <clears throat> 
really i uh i would to- i would totally not agree with that so I, we'll, we'll we'll get to my favorite cover i guess a little bit later All right. I, i'm with scott i like the cover a lot very simplistic and, and, and natural but also very very um it's, it's a very nice tie-in i mean you you look at it as a customer just picking it up off a shelf that's a nice tree but it certainly has a significance that you'll get into you know, as as you get into the series of films, so uh, I, I liked it quite a bit as well. Once I sort of made the connection to what, the moment that it signifies. Um. Oh, you know, one other thing that I wanted to mention now that I'm looking at my notes is the uh, going back to, real quick. This is just like a point that I wanted to make <laughs> out for anyone who's maybe watching this for the first time and thinking like, oh, I want to look at the, you know, um, is this believable? Is this, you know, um a realistic uh, portrayal of this stuff. Like one thing that I noted that I felt like is often kind of glamorized in movies in general was, is when they chop wood. And in this movie, the chopping of the wood is such a like arduous task and it's not mm-hmm. as easy as it is you know you watch something like the avengers uh, or one of the avengers movies where they're chopping wood and they're just making it like it's like a game and um and it's so easy and clean and this they're just like you know their act their little axe gets stuck in it they have to break it apart it's just like such a huge pain to chop this wood and yeah. it was just one little touch that I really loved, and they would go back to it, uh, you know, time after time. In at least in the beginning, when they're still in Sweden. And I think yeah. that's also just Troel's uh, thing. He likes to, he he doesn't he likes to show work and hard work and the and toil a, of it all. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, and not like revenge. Uh, that's another wood chopping movie. <laughs> that is a oh man, I love that wood chopping scene though. That is an, even though it's you know a completely different kind of wood chopping. Man, that is uh, among my favorites. Yeah, we'll Seven's, have to have a wood chopping with some someday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Seven Samurai has a pretty great wood chopping sequence <laughs> in it too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I smell a new Criterion theme in the Explorer session. <laughs> wood chopping episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we'll go now to the next spine number release. So those were seven ninety six, seven ninety seven. We're now at seven ninety eight. The Oshima film, Death by Hanging. And yeah. uh, David, you wrote the review over on our site for this release. Uh, sure. So I'll, I'll just start by kind of, uh, you know, quoting a few bullet points from there. I mean, as I, as I kind of opened with in that review, uh, it's been a while since Criterion has kind of said, here's a Japanese film that's not a samurai uh, epic. It's not a Blu-ray Ozu or Kurosawa upgrade. Uh, as I noted, it's been 2011 when Kurneko's uh, or, or uh, Shindo's Kuroneko came out, and and was that Shindo, Shindo or Shinoda? I can't. I think it's Shinoda. Anyway, so we'll we'll uh, clean that up in the <laughs> editing process. Anyway, so Kuroneko came out about five years ago, and uh, finally we we have a new uh, Nagase Oshima film, Death by Hanging, and this was a film from 1968 that uh, just coincidentally enough, well, not exactly coincidentally, it's by design, uh, uh, Aaron and, of course, Trevor Barrett and I have been talking about uh, the uh, Oshima's Outlaw 60s set on the Eclipse Viewer podcast, and we'll be finishing up uh, part two of that little mini-series uh, just in a couple of days. But uh, Death by Hanging came out right in the, right in the midst of that run of uh, kind of latter 60s films that Oshima was uh, was uh, making as he kind of declared his independence from the Japanese studio system, and uh, there's even comments on the uh, you know the Criterion page uh, dedicated to the 
Oshima's Outlaw 60s set saying, why wasn't Death by Hanging included? And of course, those comments were left sometime after that set was announced and before uh, Death by Hanging was announced last fall. Um, as I watched this film, having already made my acquaintance with the, uh, the Eclipse set, I recognized pretty quickly why this film was, was worthy of a standalone release and maybe why Criterion sort of kept it you know, in their back pocket saying, we're going to, we're going to release this one solo someday. And I'm really glad that they did. This is a fantastic movie and it's a really, uh, a great introduction to Oshima's earlier career for those who just know him through, you know, in the realm of the senses, um, or, or maybe even, uh, you know, have maybe sampled the eclipse set or maybe watched some of his, uh, films online this, to me, seems a lot like when uh, Criterion released Brisson's A Man Escaped uh, maybe a year or two ago. It's probably a couple years now. Um, to me, that felt like this is the gateway into Brisson, even though they'd released quite a few of his other films prior to that. But, but just that full package of the film A Man Escaped and some of the supplements that went with it really kind of unlocked Brisson for me as a viewer. And I assume it maybe had that same effect on others. Uh, this to me is really a great entry point into Oshima's, uh, uh, filmography because it's very accessible on the surface. It's, it's, it's a, it's a film that really kind of shows his stylistic variations, uh, that typically happen from one film to the other. He sort of has a reputation for differentiating his current film from whatever he had done previously. So, whether that's the last one was about black and white, this one's going to be color. Uh, the the last one was a bunch of long takes. We're going to do a lot of rapid edits. Uh, this here kind of has several different styles happening all in one film. There's a kind of a cold documentary uh, opening where it's very factual, very uh, you know serious and and confrontational to the viewer, and then it turns into this really kind of surrealistic, bizarre comedy before taking on this more polemic, uh, metaphorical uh, aspect towards the end. And, and so what is this about? Well, Death by Hanging is really a meditation on capital punishment, um, as the title obviously implies, and that's how it opens up. You know, Have you ever seen the inside of an execution chamber? Those of you in the Japanese populace who support the death penalty, do you really know what it is you're, you're, you're lining up behind? Oshima obviously has some political attitudes that that oppose the death penalty or that basically oppose the state taking on that kind of godlike power of saying who deserves to live and who must die. And so he, he kind of confronts the viewer with this message, but he does so through this um, really, really incredible tale. He, he bases it on a real life situation, a, a young man of Korean descent who lived, lived in Japan actually did rape and murder two high school girls. And while he was in prison, uh, awaiting the execution sentence, he wrote a series of letters that showed himself to be a very thoughtful, articulate, uh, you know, intelligent young man who had actually done some really horrible things. And uh, this caught Oshima's attention, and he used that kind of real-life situation as the basis of the film. And just as a bit of a setup, what happens in the movie is we are led through the whole process, the ritual, if you will, of, of an execution, of a, of a capital punishment 
situation where they they show the exact steps that uh, that a condemned person would go through uh, when right as they're being about to be put to death. Uh, but then something bizarre happens. The the hanged man doesn't die, <laughs> and and he also suffers kind of a, a bout of amnesia where he's no longer able to identify who he is or what he did. And because he survives the hanging, it throws the whole procedure into this uproar. Nobody knows exactly what to do next. Do we rehang him? Well, mm-hmm. can we hang a man who's not cognizant of his crimes? He's mentally incapacitated. And, and so then uh, now you've got this whole tangle of legal issues and then even metaphysical issues about, you know, he's had his last rites and so his soul no longer inhabits his body. And it's just, it's just, it's this incredibly uh, sort of this satire of, of officialdom that's, that seems to be in control, but finds itself utterly perplexed and at a loss of what to do when, when the program doesn't proceed as, as scheduled. And so there are parts of the film that are incredibly funny and hilarious. Uh, some of the antics of the actors mm-hmm. as all, as well as the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the dilemma that these men find themselves in. So, uh, I, I just found this a, a, be a really fascinating film. And as I've already said, a, a great, uh, attachment point, if you will, to, to start exploring what Oshima was up to in the 60s before he moved into some of the notoriety of his 1970s work. So the movie is, <clears throat> if anyone hasn't seen the film yet, it is currently available to watch on Hulu, uh, although you know, you're know you not getting the supplements uh, that, that are included on this release, one of which is this interview with Tony Raines. And uh, I found it to be incredibly helpful. I watched the movie first and then went and watched this, the interview with Tony Reigns where he talks you know, about the history of Oshima and um, what led to this movie, uh, including a little discussion about the short documentary that, that Oshima made, which is included as a supplement on this release too. Um, and I think the, like, the contextualizing that comes with that uh, interview is pretty important for a movie like this that, has, that deals with the relationship between the Koreans uh, in Japan and the Japanese at the time and what was going on and why, you know, what the the hostilities were, what led uh, Oshima to include. You know, another uh, great supplement I think that's important that Criterion actually released online is the uh, trailer with Oshima's kind of voiceover talking about this movie and, you know, why he made it. Um, I think if you were just to watch this movie by itself um, now without any context of what, why he made this movie, um, I think a lot of the you know, you'll, you'll still get the humor in the like silliness of the bureaucrats. Um, but you know, the kind of like politics that led to this might be harder for, for, you know, younger viewers or for people who don't know what happened to really understand. I do feel like, you know, uh, Oshima didn't necessarily set the capital punishment theme aside entirely, but his real extra grind was, this uh, this really what amounts to a very racist attitude about from the Japanese toward the Koreans, and of course this extends back into you know the history of previous decades where Japan was really not just an occupying colonial power but a real abuser of the people of the Korean Peninsula, and and uh, as we kind of discussed in the first episode of the Eclipse, you were uh, Oshima himself kind of had a kind of a a. a split loyalty or a kind of a duality I mean, he was Japanese, but he, he lived on an Island that was kind of between Japan and Korea and had traveled to Korea and had some real, 
you know, profound sympathy with, with the suffering that this people had gone through. And that, that, that supplement that you mentioned, the diary of young Bogi, uh, was a series of still photographs that he took in Korea to, uh, you know, kind of emphasize the plight of the children in particular, uh, and the, the terribly you know, impoverished conditions that they lived in. So there was definitely a, a social conscience here. You know, again, Oshima can be very, you know, kind of tidily categorized as an exploitive or shocking director because of the, uh, the, the, the graphic intensity of the topics and, you know, the subject matter of his films. But he really was a, a very, uh, sincere and, and, uh, heartfelt humanitarian. I mean, that that's, as I get deeper in, in familiarity with his work, that's what really stands out to me is like he, he really cared about people, even though he had a certain fascination for <laughs> criminal and deviant sexual behavior, uh, as a way of kind of tapping into those kind of primal forces that motivate, motivate us, especially those who live a little bit outside of, uh, society's, uh, you know, proper laws and customs and expectations. Yeah, he's a, a true crime radical filmmaker, which is pretty unique. Well, I, I guess Imamura had had his moments, but yeah, and, and this is uh, the the third Korean film. Uh, the other was Sing a Song of Sex and uh, Three res- Resurrected Drunkards, actually, which followed this too. And of course, we're going to be talking about those on the next Eclipse viewer. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, he he definitely didn't. He he did identify with the Korean plight, and I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right that the Tony Raines uh, essay, visual essay, uh, or conversation really does bring that to the forefront. Uh, and but even without that, I think it's a fun, uh, you know, it's a, a comedy, and it is hilarious. Uh, and I think the character of R, and I, I, I'm not sure who played him, but he plays a great straight man to the uh, to what's going on, the shenanigans. So. I think yeah, in the in one of the supplement, maybe it was the Tony Raines interview where he talks about how he this was I think his only film that he made and that he didn't go on to do anything else after this. I'm pretty sure he was in Drunkards, but I think in a cameo. In a cameo, oh, okay. there's one shot, but you know and we'll talk about that have, on Friday. <laughs> right, and he might have worked in in Oshima's crew or something. I think he had more of a technical role, but and and his performance is is pretty subdued. You know, he's 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 kind of blank and impassive, but it's it's kind of hypnotic. And then you compare that with the really wild shenanigans of uh, Fumio Watanabe, especially he's the education mm-hmm. minister. And he's oh, yeah. he's really just like a one man stand up comedy routine for significant portions as they're reenacting the crimes that are uh, had committed trying to jog his memory. And it it is just comedy of the absurd. It's it's like something out of Beckett, you know, waiting for Godot, where the men are just writhing around and wrestling and just being completely ridiculous on the floor, you know, mock killing and raping each mm-hmm. other. It's like Yeah, and, and there's wow. a, a a woman that comes into play which I won't get into and and, and the yeah. way they, they handle that is uh, very unique. Uh, so almost like a like the old vaudeville, you know, you have the straight man, and then in this case, you have a, a number of goofballs that uh, that follow alongside. So yeah, I agree. That's it's probably a great ent- entry point to his work. Yeah, I would yeah. recommend it. A lot, a lot of, of, a lot of. I was just gonna say a lot of the people who have, have written about this and talked about it have described it as like Brechtian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because there's an artificiality to much of what happens. I mean, it, it starts like I say in this documentary style, but it really goes off on some crazy tangents uh, from the beginning to the end. And it's, it's completely 
unpredictable. It, you know, where it's going to go next in the next five or ten minutes, uh, you, you probably don't see it coming the first time through. And so, and, and even some of the philosophical debates, the metaphysical speculations and stuff, that's just kind of fun little head trip to go on to kind of follow these arguments. So you're laughing and then you're thinking and then you're wondering, hmm, yeah, just, you know, just how this whole, this whole scheme came together. It's a very brilliant script uh, just on that level as well. So yeah, a, a lot to like about this film. I haven't seen the film yet, but I was intrigued by that short documentary that's included in the supplements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that, uh, yeah, that's, a, a that's interesting. Good reflection of the film as well. Does it pair well with it? Mm. Oh yeah. I think, I think it's the, the perfect platform. There's really no other, you know, I mean, it's a, it's about a 25 minute short subject. It's, it's, it's uh, based on a book that I guess was pretty popular in Japanese leftist circles at the time. It was kind of a, a, a child's perspective narrative, kind of uh, the the plight of the of the lonely orphan, uh, the gum peddlers. You know, hey Joe, want chewing gum? You know, kind of thing. And and so they're uh, they're kind of bringing it to the surface. Uh, you know, the these these anonymous throwaway kids that probably just swarmed all over the streets of Seoul and other you know Korean cities and uh, hovered around you know, the American military bases and lived in, uh, there's this, uh, orphanage called the, you know, garden of hope. this nice little euphemistic term that, uh, that is, it's a, it's a hell hole where all these unwanted children are kind of carted, you know, and corralled up. And so, yeah, again, I mean, I, I, I work with, you know, kids coming from some pretty tough backgrounds. And so my heart went out to just seeing these pictures. And again, it's a film entirely of still images. So if you think about, Elijah Tay, uh, Chris Marker's, you know, kind of landmark film mm-hmm. of one still photograph sequence after another with voiceover. There's a stylistic similarity, but the reason he had to make the film that way is that it was actually illegal for him to shoot motion pictures in Korea. There were some laws that prohibited him from doing that, so he could he could take still photos, and and so uh, there's an authenticity. This is not you know directed to child actors or anything. These are just real kids in the real slums of Korea. Um, and you see their faces and their bodies and, and, uh, you know, just, just the wretched conditions they live in. So this is, yeah, this, this is straight up reality coming at you. And I think to Scott's question, I think this one shows, uh, Bogey shows Oshima's heart, which is the basis for death by hanging. And that's where he uses his experimental filmmaking techniques to kind of really pass on that message, his pro Korean message. Uh, I have to say that this is my favorite cover of the month. I think the uh, kind of like I, my my favorite covers are typically, you know, like custom art made for the release. But this is like an iconic kind of simple, bold, you know, like nice color palette or, you know, color scheme of black and white and red. Um, I just I really love this cover a lot. Yeah, I like it, too. And the internal pamphlet too, the you know the little you know it's kind of it's very stylized. You got Kai Sato's face in a rising sun, that's kind of impassive, uh, you know, stone cold, uh, you know, Japanese, you know, the, the face of law. Yeah, there's there's some nice touches to it. Even kind of incorporating the like circular, I guess like the the circle within the 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 noose, kind of an interesting mm-hmm. kind of play on what's going on mm-hmm. in the movie. Oh, definitely. 
Well, guys, I think we should move along here. Yes, definitely. We have, yeah, a we, lot, we have a lot to talk about. We can go I'm, deep with these. Uh, Film yes. number two. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <I'll get> three more. <laughs> I, was looking, I was like, oh, we've only been talking for an hour and we've only done two movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So... Film number three. Feel free to edit if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Hopefully, we'll we'll all make it uh, for three more film discussions. All right. So, Spine Seven Ninety Nine, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Is this the first ver- the first film that Criterion is referring to him as Charlie Chaplin? Where all the other? Oh, I guess not. I'm looking at his list now. I know the Charlie Chaplin Charles Chaplin thing uh, has been kind of like messing with the. Uh, when you click on his name some things don't show up and some things do on the criterion website but this is now the earliest kind of feature release from charlie chaplin in the collection as a part of their uh, ongoing releases of of the chaplin films um which were announced way back in i think 2010 now but um i have been you know a huge fan of the charlie chaplin releases and uh, this continues my love of their their working with the Chaplin estate to get these, uh, you know, kind of definitive editions. Um, this one, you know, the the Chaplin film, The Kid, is you know pretty short by you know amongst all of the films that we're going to be talking about tonight. This is easily the shortest at under an hour. Um, you know, the this is Jackie Coogan's first or not maybe not his first film, but this is you know, Jackie Coogan kind of an iconic role uh, who would later go on to star in you know he'd be he's Uncle Fester. Um, <laughs> But here we see him as a uh, four, five-year-old kid who is who's adopted by uh, Chaplin's tramp character, and you know we see them uh, go on a number of uh, adventures and get in get themselves into trouble in all sorts of ways. Um, I love this movie. I think it's so much fun. It's so charming. I you know as a, as a parent, it adds you know watching it now. Uh, being a parent of a child about the same age as the kid in this movie, it's just uh, I love it so much. The uh, does Miranda throw rocks at uh, windows? <laughs> I bet if she, I bet if I were to convince her to do that and to have this little you know window uh, repair uh, scheme going on, I bet she would. And by the way, I checked, and it looks like the later films they refer to him as Charles, uh, beginning from Great Dictator on, and early films, um, modern times, and earlier is Charlie, which is strange. Yeah, I don't know if that's a, if that was a, if that's a, a specific thing. Um, I'm sure it is, but the uh, there's a lot of great supplements on this release. Um, there's the audio commentary track with Charles Maland, a little dry, I think. Uh, you know, there are other commentary tracks in this month that I found much more interesting and, and fun, but I think he goes through the story, gives you a lot of historical context for this release. The, um, the Jackie Coogan video essay that Lisa Haven did, fantastic. That's great. Yeah, that. it's so good. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to watch this movie and to learn about, you know, what his parents were doing to him, or you know, what, how they were taking advantage of him. Um, but then to kind of, you know, feel a little bit better in that he would go on to cr- help, you know, create the Coogan Act, which would go on to like, mm-hmm. you know, help all of these child actors later in life, um, you know, retain some of the money that they were due uh, for all of their work. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a conundrum that we're in watching this movie, enjoying his performance, but then also knowing that he's being, you know, he's, he's being taken advantage of in this role, maybe not by Chaplin, but by his parents. Uh, very sad. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the undercranking documentary that Ben Modell did, so much fun. I, it was kind of highlighting an element of silent films where he talks about the, um, you know, how, how 
silent filmmakers would shoot at a certain speed and then you know they would take into account how fast the film would be cranked by hand by the projectionists in in cinemas and you know kind of plan their their gags out uh accordingly and uh it was something that i i kind of was aware of maybe subconsciously in just like how in in watching silent films but it was nice to have him um he was this silent film he's like an accompanist where he you know uh and, and he's done a lot of great work he's helped release a number of other uh silent film dvd releases um but i th- i think that might be my favorite supplement uh this month just because it was something that was you know it was just a nice little like kind of criterion produced thing that uh you know i wasn't really I wasn't really planning on having something like that uh, kind of come across, even though it was on the list of, uh, of supplements. But anyway, um, there are, so the, there was, this was the 1972 re-release version of the film. Um, in, in other releases, Criterion has included, you know, multiple versions of the film as, you know, like the gold rush. But um, in this one, you, you at least get those deleted scenes that were, that Chaplin took out of the film. And, I think I think they did the right thing with this. I don't think they needed to include a whole other version of the movie with those three scenes added back in. I think including them as deleted scenes, um, just given like the materials that they had to work with, uh, was a totally acceptable way to do this. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think they they did frame the the deleted scenes too, so you sort of see them in context. You know, uh, the Gold Rush really you could say those are two different movies with a whole mm-hmm. full audio narration for the latter version and some pretty significant re-edits and and deleted scenes that were left out but i think you know sometimes you know less is more and sometimes you know i think uh chaplin's later in life uh decisions you know uh, they deserve respect and i think that's pretty much where the family is at as well you know the estate of, of charlie chaplin says uh you know this is this is the the version that he he came up with you know after he'd had some time to think it over and I don't really fault them for saying this is what we're going to go with, but but making those deleted scenes available, uh, which really are kind of a side plot that, you know, I've watched them. I don't think they add enormously to it. So yeah, two two separate you know versions would have just taken up extra disc disc space. So I, I agree they did the right thing. And you, you probably wouldn't notice the scenes if you just watched the film uh, for a second time, mm-hmm. unless you're really really paying attention. The cover art is from Efron Miller. I like the title treatment that they came up with for it. Um, I, you know, w- when I look at the Chaplin releases as like a gathering of different discs, I kind of wish they had maybe settled on one person. I wish like maybe one person had been able to take on all of them so that there'd be like consistency amongst all the releases. But um, I think every artist kind of brings a new little um, view on, you know, how best to package these films. But um you know, I'm that, sure probably the different artists appreciate having a crack at it, yes, sort of like the Zedouichi set. Let's yeah. a lot, get a lot of talent in here rather than give the whole franchise to one person. You know, but the the Harold Lloyd ones I think work well, and I think those are all the same artists, aren't they? Yeah, I think Efron Miller did all those too. Um, I mean, I have so many notes on the kid, uh, but I, <laughs> maybe, you know, we we definitely should move along here. Um, I maybe I'll just save all my notes here for something like uh, a full episode if we ever get to doing the kid. Um, it's definitely high on my list of stuff to talk about. Uh, there's just so much fun. There's so many great little gags. There's so many little moments in here that I think are just like iconic Charlie Chaplin uh, gags. 
Well, and for one of the very oldest films in the Criterion Collection now, this really looks incredibly sharp and beautiful, you know, for for an old black and white film that, you know, presumably been pretty well beat up over the years. You really, uh, it it feels, you know, not certainly like it was filmed yesterday or anything like that, but, but there's a vitality to it. That's, that's quite remarkable. I mean, I watched, you know, uh, you know, somewhat notoriously, I suppose that the whole run of Chaplin that Criterion had. And of course, uh, last fall when I did it for the uh, Criterion blogathon, it was, it was just a streaming only title at that point. But, uh, this, this was like a new experience watching it, uh, you know, on the Blu-ray. So it's, it's an essential, it's an essential, uh, you know, addition to any collection, I would think. I mean, I'll probably say this again later, but um, this one in particular, just, I, you know, and this is something that we've been saying for years and that is, you know, kind of like part of the experience of, of the Criterion Collection is that this is really like film school in a box material. This is something that if you enjoy this movie, you should own this disc. This is something that you will go back to and rewatch. Um, and by having all these extra materials to kind of supplement your viewing, um, you really get a lot more out of the movie, I think. Yeah, I think all chaplains are like that. They're all worth buying. And and in fact, I think you asked uh, what the next one is going to be. And that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, there are uh, several other films, you know, feature films that Criterion could do. Um, I think, let's see, what is it? Like A Woman in, of Paris? You know, a Woman Paris, in Paris yeah. Yeah, and the, the Circus. I think those are yeah. the two that... I think The Circus and, is and the King big one. And King of New York. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. King, and, King of New York is not as good of a film, I think. No, but, it's really not. <laughs> but but there's a, it's an interesting story just because of the blacklist. So I, I think the Criterion will one day do it, and I think it'll be a good release. Um, now, Countess of Hong Kong, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's one that they still don't have the rights to. Uh, at least nothing's been released on Hulu. That was an MGM release. And I, I do have he, the DVD. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting, but yeah, it's 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 a little bit of a sad note, you know, that that's how he wound it all up. Yeah, they would probably put it out if they had the rights, but I that would be last for sure. Yeah, maybe a late Chaplin box set of some sort or something. Like that. Right. Yeah. Um. So let's move on to the next film uh, that Criterion released. This was um, Spine Number Eight Hundred, kind of a big. A big spine number, uh, you a, know, landmark, a landmark yes. spine number, definitely. Uh, Mike Nichols, The Graduate, 1967. This one, uh, once a Laserdisc release, now a Criterion Collection Blu-ray release. Um, and, you know, s- such an important film in, uh, you know, in American film history. Um, you know, Mike Nichols' second film after doing um, Virginia Woolf and um, just so much... Uh, so much go- went into like you know led up to this release or no, not the release the film and then mm-hmm. so much kind of was influenced by it later on and uh you know it tells the story of um dustin hoffman's character who has just graduated from from college his home is not you know is unsure of where he's going in life and is unhappy with the way the current direction and is uh brought into uh, the web of uh mrs robinson uh, and uh, magnificent performances that still hold up from all of these all of these people and Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, um, you know, everyone who shows up in this is just hilarious and uh, a little sad, but you know, magnificent. I think um, the release again 
this is like film school in a box. I, I, <laughs> there's no other better way I think to describe it in that like you're getting two different audio commentary tracks, the Howard Super audio commentary track from, I think it was on the Laserdisc um, from 1987. That one, uh, and then there's another commentary track with uh, Mike Nichols talking with Steven Soderbergh. Um, I think, you know, for anyone maybe who's, you know, seeing this movie for the first time, you know, watch the movie first, then go and listen to the Howard Suber commentary track where you can really, uh, he breaks this movie down into like its pieces, tells you what he's, what the, what Mike Nichols is doing and all the different shots, you know, highlights the different uses of costuming and set design and, and, you know, all the art direction that's going on in it. Um, really wonderfully. I mean that his commentary track, I think is what it, it kind of reminded me of like what, commentary tracks used to be whereas like i think the soderbergh nichols commentary track is more of like a modern style one where it's like this conversation where they're they're kind of watching the movie at the same time but then they're just having their own little side conversation as it's happening and you're you're there listening in on it um both i think are interesting and add to you know the overall experience but um i'm glad that they included both and not you know one or the other Kind of like a Wes Anderson commentary. Yeah. I know, like just... some of those Wes Anderson commentaries are like, you know, it's just them talking and it, you're not really, you don't get as much out of it as some, when you have maybe like a film scholar or film historian talking about the movie. But they're a lot like of fun. I like when they do they're... both though. Like yes, on the third yes. man, uh, it has that same kind of dichotomy and, you know, one kind of serves to heighten your emotional appreciation of it and the other kind of serves to help you really understand it more and... Like you said, they're both very valuable, and I'm glad they did it for this. Even if I don't like the film that much, I'm out. <laughs> it's okay to not like uh, the hater. Yes. <laughs> no, I can. Uh, I mean, you know, it it is definitely dated, and it is also like very, I don't know, like stylized performances, and I think I think there's you know valid criticisms to be lobbied or you know like lobbed against this movie. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have read uh, Pictures from a, from a Revolution, which was about uh, 1967 films. I think it was Mark Harris that wrote that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and they talk about this and Bonnie and Clyde and uh, In the Heat of the Night and the picture is nominated for Best Picture. And and I'm, I'm with Scott that it, I, I don't love the film. I like it. But uh, I think it is more just important in, you know, it's an important movie for Arthur Penn and uh, I'm sorry, that's Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, for Mike Nichols, you know, who had done theater before uh, before Virginia Woolf. And it's I think it actually set the stage for the American New Wave. And of course, Dustin Hoffman, that's really where his career began. So I, I'd say it's worthy of a, a criterion release. And I, I I haven't gotten through all of these commentaries, but we're doing a close up on it week after next. So I, I guess I better get cracking. Um, so important movie, maybe not the best. Um. So yeah, I mean, I think this it's it's fascinating that Criterion finally got this. They were teasing it. Um, I think oh, when did they? I think they made a, maybe have shown like a picture of the Laserdisc at some point. Or um, mm-hmm. this is this was a release that we kind of knew was in the works. And um, you know, when it was announced, it wasn't that surprising. But it is kind of nice to get you know these bigger titles certainly um, add to the like brand awareness maybe of criterion even if we think that everyone should know about criterion by now like you know when you release something like graduate you're able to put that uh you know maybe maybe draw in new people who didn't know what criterion was before and i did go ahead all right well has anybody seen any i mean this seems like sort of a 
kind of a compendium of all the previous releases of The Graduate that have come out all on kind of one new state-of-the-art disc. But is there anything particularly superior about the transfer yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, the transfer uh, is is notably better. I think I'll, I'll include so a little Than okay. even previous Blu-rays, you're saying, Yes, right? definitely. Okay. It okay. says brand new 4K restoration, so mm-hmm. should should look good. No, and it definitely does. And it, you know, uh, if you, I'll put a link in the show notes to the, like, DVD Beaver comparisons, but um, it is notably better than the past Blu-ray release. And also, this is going to sell a lot of copies. I, I, I Checked the Facebook likes since our last <laughs> newsstand, and yes. it's not quite to a lonely place, but uh, yeah, but I think it's uh, uh, above a thousand. So you know, it's it's a popular release. So let's uh, move on now to the last release of the month, Spine Number Eight Hundred One. This is the film from Antonio Pietrangeli. I knew her well from nineteen sixty-five. So Scott, you were going to be leading our discussion of this film tonight. Yeah, I was super intrigued by this film when Criterion announced it. I'd never really heard of it before. I think like a lot of film fans, I always enjoy a good swing in 60s Italian movie. You know, they're very stylish period and get some uh, a good mix of kind of the appeal of that kind of decadent culture, but also sharp critique of it. And this definitely follows that trend we've seen before with Fellini and Antonioni. Uh, what stood out most to me upon seeing it was just how funny it is. It's... Uh, you get so many scenes. It kind of takes an episodic structure uh, like La Dolce Vita, but with shorter scenes. And so the scenes can kind of go all over the place as far as tone goes. And so there's some where she's, you know, talking to a talent agent who's like in the midst of arguing with his wife about dinner that's just had me and my girlfriend laughing out loud. And then there's others that really heighten the central character's loneliness. You know, it's about this young woman who uh, moved to Rome in the hopes of being in motion pictures and is kind of getting caught up in the excitement of the lifestyle and also just how hopeless her journey really is. And I get the feeling, uh, you know, I haven't seen anything else by Antonio Pietrangeli. Uh, I got the feeling based on kind of the essay that was included with this, that he took an active interest in kind of the way women uh, lived in Italy at the time. You get the sense from other movies that, you know, misogyny was not a light part of the culture and, the way Petrangeli approaches it, at least in the other movies from the way they were written about, seemed kind of confrontational and maybe a little didactic. And there's a sense of that in this film. I think the conclusion he kind of comes to about this character is a little pat and simplistic. Um, but his investigation of her throughout the rest of the film is pretty fascinating. And he seems generally open to kind of what drove all these women to suddenly come to Rome in search of fame and for- fortune at this one particular time when there was such an influx of money and such an influx of uh, societal interest worldwide because of so many famous films. And it's interesting to watch the way that the film works in conversation with those other films rather actively. The film, this film begins on a beach, which is very similar to the beach where La Dolce Vita ends. Uh, It includes a snippet from the theme from Le Clis. There's kind of just a sense and later she'll visit the fountain um, Mm -hmm. from La Dolce Vita and there's just a sense in which all this culture is existing and talking to her and compelling her at every second, forward and forward, and that she doesn't have kind of another active life outside of it. And there's a sadness there, you know, when she goes back to visit her parents, they mostly spend their time together berating her, and she doesn't really have a response to it, uh, perhaps out of respect for them, but perhaps just as much because she 
is kind of confront- confronting these issues herself, you know. I mean, the actress who played her was only 19 at the time. You get the sense the character is probably about the same, maybe a year younger, maybe a year older, but, you know, not not someone who's uh, yet had to confront the loneliness of living outside on your own and uh, getting a sense of what you really want from life apart from what, you know, either your parents or outside society tells you. So I, I thought it was a very interesting movie. I, I can't say I was completely captivated by it, partly because of the conclusion that Pietro Nelli comes to about the character and partly because there's such a distance from the central character. You know, he's forever investigating her, but there's a kind of a, a lack of empathy, I think, and a lack of true kind of feeling. The disc includes a snippet of her audition reel, which presented a different type of performance than the kind she gives in the film. It's more kind of actively melodramatic, and that actually I found much more compelling as far as compared to the performance she gives in the film, which is interesting, but doesn't really open herself up. I don't know if the rest of you had similar struggles with it, or maybe you loved it even more, but I'd be interested to hear. And on her audition, that was also her real voice, too. I, I think she was dubbed in the film. Oh, really? I hadn't read that. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but uh, yeah, it, it sounded like different voices to me. But still a good performance, I think, even with the dubbing. Uh, she did a lot of with her face uh, without dialogue. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason the audition also stood out, because it's just a shot of her at all moments. You know, there's no kind of shot-reverse shot. She's just there to react, and in the film, her strongest moments are those silent moments you know she probably has one or two shots too many shots of her just staring at the camera which is kind of an easy go-to mm-hmm. in these alienation movies but otherwise yeah i, w- I was actually quite taken with this and in oh, fact good. this is one of my favorite releases of the month uh and in fact I, I i like you said there was a communication with the uh, the other films and, and there was even a, they name dropped at visconti at the uh, the party uh, there's a, a great scene with a party and a tap dancer that i, I won't get, get into but uh and I, I kind of see this as, uh, you know, it's the, a transition in, in Italian film industry. You, you have, you know, Antonioni was moving on to America. Well, I think this was probably about the time he was doing Blow Up. And uh, Fellini was, you know, about to enter his new new phase. Uh, so, uh, and of course, the comedies had been coming out. So I think it was more of a, a critique of the industry. And I think it kind of walks the tightrope. There's some neorealist uh, elements. I, I'd mentioned that it reminded me of an Antonioni film. Uh, so yeah, I was actually quite struck by, it. and of course, eight and a half little Vita. You have the lost protagonist, but uh, and there's a lot of those in Italian cinema, but not a lot of females. So and I thought Sandrelli uh, really did a good job of uh, embodying that. What do you guys think? Well, you know, it's it's funny, Aaron. You know, I just listened to the episode of Fat Girl that you and uh, Mark did with Kristen Sales and your extended conversation about the male gaze, and here I am feeling a little conflicted because I just kind of enjoyed watching Stephanie Sandrelli, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> she's she's uh, very, very pleasant to look at, and, and especially from her earlier Criterion releases, uh, Divorced Italian Style and Seduced and Abandoned, where she really is almost kind of thrown in there as eye candy. Actually, I, 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 I think I genuinely appreciated her performance as an actor in this film. Uh, again, yeah, she's she's quite beautiful and and all of that, but she did, you know, she, she I think she played a, a a fully embodied character here, and it was nice to see her given that platform to to kind of give the woman's point of view because those other films uh, and most Italian films that you think of from this period really do tend to focus on the plight of the men, and women are just kind of complications in their lives, 
and this kind of uh, kind of opens it up from the woman's perspective. So yeah, I'm still sort of processing all that uh, the, all that uh, you know feminist uh, film theory, which was very enlightening <laughs> and it was a great conversation. I'll just kind of give you a little plug and commendation for that and for Kristen too and for her uh, uh, contributions she, there. So she does, yeah. deserves the credit. So she Certainly. was great. Well, you facilitated it quite well as well. So, uh, yeah, but 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 this this was a this was a good platform for her. And I I, I also I guess I'll throw in El Paso as another kind of uh, vintage item from that same era that I know Scott and I were. You part of that one too, or no? Who who else was on that episode of this? Maybe Trevor. I think it was. We talked about uh, that in uh, kind of one of the main episodes from a year or two ago. So yeah, th- this is a this like sort of like Scott led with. This is a fun time. In Italian cinema, uh, just interesting narrative stuff going on, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I haven't sort of you know deeply sunk into it. I just watched the main feature one time without getting into the supplements, but uh, you know, pr- pretty pleased with what I found. The uh, the interview with Luca Baratoni, who is the uh, author of this. Uh, what did he write? What was the name of his book? This uh, post neorealist cinema or Italian post neorealist cinema. I thought I found that uh, interview to be really helpful in, in kind of helping contextualize this movie. Uh, his, you know, uh, the director Pietrangeli's place in kind of Italian cinema um, because I didn't know very much about him, and um, I thought that was a really nice little you know overview of this era and kind of what led up to it. Yeah, for sure. And the essay kind of deepens that as well it's pretty tragic too because he uh drowned in a in a a film a couple years later so he really didn't get to um, have much of a career but i think just based on what i saw here i think he could have become uh, a pretty uh, pretty big auteur this cover i think might be my second favorite i think the the use of the image with that kind of torn paper you know to reveal Mm. the title treatment um you know, plays into the themes of the movie, um, you know, like how well do we know anyone or, you know, what's going on underneath the the surface. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I really love the use of like the pink along with the, the black and the white image. Yeah. I've been enjoying how much pink they've been getting into the yeah. <laughs> releases of late. This yeah. and Gilda. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I like all the covers this month, except for maybe the graduate, even though I, I like the poster, but it just, it's, that's too, but you have to have that image for the yeah, graduate. It's kind of inescapable. <laughs> It's marketing, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all right. So, does anyone have any other thoughts on uh, on I knew her well before we maybe start uh, talking about the month overall or start wrapping things up here? So, um, I I don't know about you guys, but I've I've been I I want there to be a a common theme in the in the releases of a month, and so <laughs> I, I might be forcing this onto it, but. Um, in, in, you know, like planning this new series of episodes and kind of talking about the the month's releases from Criterion, uh, I felt like this was kind of a natural thing is to like say, well, why did Criterion put all of these together? You know, like what connects them or, you know, what do we get out of getting these five different films from these five different filmmakers? Um, or I guess six, mm-hmm. if you include with the two different films from uh, Troel. Um, and the, the, so here's my... Here's my 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 thesis here for you to kind of pick <laughs> apart. Uh, I think all of these films deal with people kind of in transition or ch- wanting to change themselves or being changed by forces, you know, outside of them. Um, 
And uh, I think they all kind of present that in different ways. So in I Knew Her Well, she wants to become an actress. She was wanting to change herself. And then, you know, eventually like uh, kind of a big uh, thing happens um, in, you know, the the emigrants in Newland. They're wanting to better themselves. They're wanting to go on in, in the kid. He's changed by this uh, introduction. You know, this tramp character is kind of. Uh, changed dramatically by the introduction of uh, a child or someone, you know, kind of dependent on him and how that influences his life. Um, and then obviously with the graduate, he's, you know, in this transit transitory period of wanting to, you know, like not really sure of what it is, but this woman kind of affects his life and he becomes a totally different character by the end. Um, and then obviously, and then in uh, death by hanging, I mean, he's, you know, he's com a different character from, from maybe who we might meet at the beginning of the film. And that is like a, a key element of the, of his uh, journey through it. So um, mm -hmm. what do you guys think of that? Yeah. Identity, I, I guess. Yeah. You could say, oh, especially in death by hanging, I, I definitely see the common thread. I, I, I guess I wonder whether Criterion in, in their, their little marketing meetings say, you know, okay, March, we're going to uh, have alienation and, uh, and identity <laughs> crisis uh, <laughs> uh, like, like they did with the, the night uh, month they did last year. I think it was September. Every title had a night involved. I, but yeah, it's definitely there, I think. The only other themes that I could come up with um, that maybe aren't consistent across the way, though, and I guess as we were talking now, I was trying to think of more of them, but like these films, many of these films are based, are, are kind of adapted from other materials, so like The Graduate was based on the book, The Immigrants was based on the book, uh, Death by Hanging was based on kind of, you know, the, the letters and um, the story, yeah. The story, yeah. Um, but then, you know, I knew her well, that doesn't really fit. And the kid, <laughs> not really. Then I was thinking, and as we were talking tonight about, you know, the people who involved with like uh, directing, you know, coming from the world of theater and stage, like, oh, maybe all these directors were all theater stage directors before they became filmmakers. But then like, I've been trying to find if Pietro Angeli <laughs> was uh, involved with the stage. And I don't think he was. But that was, those are the closest things I could come to, like connecting factors between all of these five films. I guess I just sort of like the diversity and the, just the range. You've got, you know, a, a silent movie classic. You've got some Japanese art house avant-garde stuff. You've got a, you know, a pivotal American, you know, uh, blockbuster of its time. Uh, some some sexy Italian comedy, and then this, you know, sprawling, uh, you know, Swedish European art house. Uh, Epic. I mean, you know, it's it's certainly not the the full spectrum of all cinema, but it's a pretty nice sampling of of different you know styles of of high quality filmmaking, and it's just a very nicely balanced month. You know, there's just there's a little something for everybody, and I think we've sort of made comments like that before. Where we just sort of look at just the range of what's being offered, and uh, just the different points of uh, comfortable accessibility for something like the graduate that's familiar, but given to us in a very definitive edition, same with the chaplain, you know, but then you've got some, some unique stuff, you know, uh, I knew her well, probably nobody was anticipating that or had even known much about it. Um, and then, uh, the Oshima and the trial sets, you know, just, it just, you know, a, a very, very solid, uh, buildup of, of the vast criterion library. Uh, it doesn't feel like they're scraping the bottom of the barrel by any means. These are, these are, um, you know, offerings that would have fit right into the, you know, you know, somewhat canonical status, uh, you know, four or 500 spine numbers ago, if they'd uh, managed to release them back then. 
Yeah, I mean, I said during one of the uh, newsstand episodes a couple months ago, looking ahead to this year, that they're really coming out of the gate screaming this year. And I think this month, looking back on it, has proven that to be quite true. I'm really pleased, not only with the releases I checked out, but based on everything you guys have said, and the ones I have yet to see. Yeah, I thought this was actually uh, one of the, the, the best months uh, that I could think of. And I, I, I think I've seen uh, the majority from a, a lot of the ones over the last uh, several, several, really since Apu maybe. Um, and I agree with you, David. I think it was a very eclectic and diverse, uh, you know, you have your radical Japanese, you have your uh, obscure Italian. And that, I like that they're bringing, you know, you mentioned Il Sorpasso. Uh, occasionally we're getting some good, uh, uh, un, like new discoveries uh, from Italy. And then you have, uh, you know, the sprawling epics, uh, which uh, I, I think um, are important films. And then you have the two big ones. I think The Kid and The Graduate are going to sell. And actually, it probably allows Criterion to, to to really bring the smaller films. And so I think this more gives them, like, credibility with their curation. I think they, they did a good job of bringing great films to us this year, this month. And, in fact, The Graduate is, uh, even though I like it, it's my least favorite of the bunch. So that says something. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me on this new little experiment of uh, talking about the releases for the month. Um, listeners, we're going to try to do this at the beginning of the following month so that we have a little bit of time to actually get to watching all of the releases or as many of the releases as we can afford and have time for. Um, so we will probably be back around this same time next month to talk about the March titles. Um, but for now, thanks so much everyone on the podcast tonight for joining me. I'll have links in the show notes to where you can find everyone online and, uh, we will be back next time. See you then. Mm -hmm.